Well, good morning, Life Fellowship. Good to see you today. My name is Dan. I'm one of the teaching pastors here. And today we are going back to a study that we began in January. And we went through the first two chapters of the book of Philippians. Took about eight or nine weeks to go through those. Then we took a pause for our journey to the cross uh, during the Easter season uh, for about two months. We're going to jump back into the book of Philippians today. And we're going to be actually in Philippians chapter 3, which you heard read just a few moments ago. But as we get into this, I just want to take a few moments and talk about our theme and where we've been Already, Our theme is consumed. You know, one of the things I love about Paul as he addresses the churches and different groups of subsets of the church uh, in his letters is that he is, he is laying down layer after layer after layer of things that we may even know but need to be reminded of. Truths that are real and vibrant in the growing Christian's life, but you know, every once in a while, you just need to be reminded of what is really real. And he, so he lays down these layers as he's painting a picture of what the mature Christian life should look like. Uh, several years ago, when I was in high school, I took an elective for, for art, which uh, just basically uh, in the 70s, taking electives was a good way not to, you know, have to study much. So I, I, I took this, this elective in art, and uh, they were teaching us how to, how to paint. I still have a couple of really, really pathetic uh, paintings in my attic or garage or something uh, that, I, that I painted years ago, and I have absolutely no idea why I keep them, uh, other than to remind myself that I chose the better vocation had I thought of a, at any point I could be an artist. But it was interesting to me when, when my art teacher was teaching me, because I just assumed when you paint a picture, you just go for the finished product. And, and, and you put all the colors in, you put all the, all the dynamics in, you put all the, you know, the, the outlines and, and, and so forth all at once. But that, if, if you're an artist at all, if you paint, you know that's not how you do it. You actually put a, a, a layer of the oils down or the acrylics down on the back. And, and then you put some of the subset colors in. And you put layer over layer over layer over layer. And then you put in the little details, the little fine touches as one of your final layers. And you're, you're looking back and say, it needs to be a little more light here. There's a shadow that needs to be emphasized here. There's a color that I've been missing as I look at the reality of what I'm trying to portray. I need to add a little color here. But layer by layer, you bring out the dimensions. And that's what Paul does. So I, I think it's really important you kind of understand his strategy as the Holy Spirit is giving him the living word of God in, in, in written form form, all right? Because the living word of God is Jesus. The, the, the written is, is the word of God, but combined their truth. And so as you're seeing him talk about the virtues of Jesus, the character of Jesus, the nature of Jesus, the purpose of Jesus, all these different things, what should it produce as we see it take root in our life? And so we're going to complete our study of this important letter, uh, and it reminds us of our, of our reputations, our projection, our testimony, our position in Christ is to be joyful. Joyful. One of the things that Paul is emphasizing in his letter to the Philippians is you have cause to be not just surface level happy, but you have cause to be so consumed by the truth, so consumed by your redemption, so consumed by the Christ who now lives in you, that the byproduct of that is almost an irrationally peaceful joy that allows you to navigate 
all the rigmarole of life, all the ups and downs and ins and outs and tossing and turning with a smile on your face and a peace in your heart that could only come from God. And I think this passage is really important to us today. I think that in this culture, in this generation, in this season of world history, it's really, really important because in my three score years, I will tell you I've never seen greater conflict. And I lived during the days of Vietnam and Watergate and the Reagan Revolution and the moral majority and the Carter years and then the Bush years and the, uh, the Clinton years. And, 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 and I've, I've watched a political landscape change. I've lived not just through Vietnam, but also through the Gulf Wars and Afghanistan and Syria and the horrible things that happened in Africa at the hands of rebels, Joseph Kony. I've seen all of those things. And I will say clearly that in terms of American culture, we are more greatly divided than at any time I can remember in my lifetime. Not only that, we are constantly inundated with reinforced messages of this conflict. How many of you are old enough to remember that at 11 o'clock, or it was usually 11.30, whenever Johnny Carson went off, they would, uh, they would play the national anthem, and then you'd get a test pattern at night. Anybody remember that? Y'all are old. You're really old, you know. Any of you remember when you only got two or three TV channels? Remember when the remote was you? <laughs> I said my dad had one of the first remote TVs around. His name was Dan. And Dan, get up and turn the channel. And, and we had this little thing on the top of our, our, our television. It, you, you would turn the knob and it would go click, 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 click. And it meant that the antenna on the top of your house was turning so that you could get one of those three channels. So, some of you young, younger folks look at me like a calf looking at a new gate. I mean, it's like, what in the world are you talking about? But, and, and some of you who lived in the cities, you also remember putting aluminum foil on there. And then, and then your dad, while you're putting it on there, would say, hey, hold right there, don't move. Because you were, getting a, you were part, part antenna at that moment. Those were the days. And, and you know what? You got news, but you got it at 5.30 or 6.30 at night. And you may be a little bit in the morning, but that was, that was about it. But today you got it 24-7, you got it on your phone. Every time something happens, you get a chirp on your phone. You get a buzz in your pocket, and you pull it out, and you say, oh, here it comes again. Oh, this has happened. Oh, somebody tweeted this. In fact, half the news articles are people reporting things that other people put on Twitter. And it's, what is it? Do you, do, you think, do you think the nice things get repeated? No, it's the crises. It's the ugly things. It's the, the extreme things. And we feed ourselves. We feed our, and we wonder why we're so filled with tension. The stress and the conflict. And every once in a while, I think you all do it as I do it. Every once in a while, I say, that's enough. That's enough. I'm going to turn off the TV. I'm not going to watch it anymore. I'm going to turn off the internet. And that usually lasts about 30 minutes. And I find myself drawn back to it. No, the reality is that many people today are having the joy of Christ sucked right out of them by the conflict that is in, by the, by the, the American culture that we want it all, that, that we won't be happy until we have, and you fill in the blank. 
we're constantly being bombarded with messages that says, you're not enough, you're not good enough, if you, unless you have this, this is going to happen, it's going to collapse on you, your, your 401k is disappearing right in our very eyes in the, in the, in, in the last 60 days, what are you going to do? You're never going to be able to retire, and, 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 and you know, the climate is, 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 is falling apart, and, and, and politics are horrible, and the Russians are coming, and we got all this stuff going on, and my goodness, if you're not able to see that from the right perspective, it will cause, I, I think there's a correlation between the mental health issues and the amount of negative information we have coming toward us. But Paul, 2,000 years ago, is addressing the same tendency of human nature. That we forget the important on the altar of today's immediate and urgent, and in doing so, we are robbed, robbed, of the joy that God intended for us to experience once we were reconciled with him. So, we need to be reminded, and Paul's doing that, and we're going to lay down these layers over the next several weeks as we complete our study, that we're to be joyfully content because we are fully consumed by the power and presence of Christ in us. That the love of God and the peace of God and the power of God and the presence of God and the purpose of God and the authority of God and the nature of God that lives within us as a work of the Holy Spirit is to be revealed in joyful hearts and actions that telescope and proclaim the all-consuming difference that Christ makes in us at salvation, assuming you are saved, assuming you have a relationship with him. So once again, I'm going to do my best not to continue on in a lengthy introduction. As I said last week was one of my resolutions for mid-year here. I want to stay concise as we study this passage and keep in mind that last week was an inspirational sermon. The, the, whole, the whole idea, if you were here last week, was I wanted you to, to come out of here enthused about what God is doing as we wrapped up the cross and as we consider the power of the resurrection, well, today we're going to shift gears completely. And I want you to know that up front so your expectations are where they should be. Whereas last week was heavy on inspiration, this week is going to be heavy on information. And the reason for that is I'm laying a layer that Pastor Ben's going to take on next week and continue to build that up now for the next eight weeks as we finish off the book of Philippians. So have that in mind because it's both important to be inspired and informed. When you read the Word of God, if you read it for its substance, it should create a godly inspiration in you. The problem is many people turn it into this kind of superficial self-help book of, of isms that, that, is, that aren't based in truth but based in emotion and feeling. And when that happens, then you're going to get off tangent, not only feeling secure about things you shouldn't feel secure about, but you're also going to abandon strong doctrine. So you got to have your head rooted in the Word of God so that your heart is inspired by the things that are consistent with truth and that are part of God. So that's the dilemma that pastors and leaders and elders bring every time we open the Word of God is how do we merge these two? So last week's inspiration, this week is information, and we're going to do a, a very methodical trip through these 11 verses this morning and I want you to follow with me. If you're a note writer, write notes. And if you want to get the notes later on, you can get them off of our app and, and they'll be there because there, there's quite a few. But Paul begins his letter that we read this morning. Finally, my brothers. 
Now, let's just pause right there because I think it's important. When you see the word finally, I, 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 in my head, I see the words in closing. Well, Paul was apparently a preacher because, you know, preachers are famous to say in closing, then they give you 12 more, more points, right? Okay. So really, this, this, this is not a, the best translation of the Greek word here. What he's basically saying is furthermore, furthermore, because he's only halfway through. And so he's, he's making this transition, furthermore, and, this, and he's going to introduce a new thought, but it's not a brand new thought because the theme of the first two chapters is the same as the last two chapters, and that is be consumed with joy, be consumed with truth, be consumed with these things that will create the right response in you. So, but what he's doing is he says, here, I'm going to give it another shot. I'm going, to, I'm going to go by and give you, I'm going to tell you some things you already know. I'm going to remind you some truth that you already know. I'm going to give you some experiences you've already heard, but I'm laying down this additional letter, uh, layer of color and truth and importance and priority because I really want you to get this. So this transitional word not only introduces a new thought, but an old thought. And, and he's beginning an admonition or a warning um, and, and is reemphasizing this, uh, this overarching theme of joy as the product of being fully consumed by the presence of God. And he's doubling down. In fact, he tells them, I'm doubling down on this. He's reiterating some things. He's reminding us that it's good to hear these things repeatedly. And so the first part of this passage that we just read is, is reminding him there is joy to be had and you can find it. There's joy to be had for, the, for, for everybody and you can find it, but it's found in the person of Christ. And this is the theme that, that he, this, this is the base layer because here, here's the reality. You may be happy today based on your circumstances, but you'll never really experience deep abiding joy that can completely change your perspective until you know Christ, until you're building it on truth. See, there's a lot of people today that are happy, but as circumstances change, happiness ebbs and flows. I'm really happy when my 401k is doing, well, I don't have a 401k. Pastors have 403bs. I'm really happy when my 403b is doing well. And then I looked on Friday night after, after last week, and I'm not happy, you know. I'll be working till three months after I die, apparently, you know, because, I mean, it's just not working out for me. I, 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 had, a little, I had a little house I was going to uh, move to when I retired, and then I said, well, I'm never going to retire. So I sold the house two years. I owned the house for 15 years, and I sold it exactly for the same price that I bought it for after 15 years of owning, owning a house out, up in the mountains. Um, and then they just sent me a thing on Friday. They said, your house is is now worth $280,000 more than I sold it for. There's my 403B right there. I'd have been fine. But you know what? Didn't give me one iota less joy. You know why? You can see, look at me. I've never missed a meal. And you, you know, I've never slept outside. Well, once or twice, and that was camping, and that was not an experience I care to repeat. Um, I drove here in fine style, you know. I've got more comfort than 90%, 95%, 99% of the people I've met on mission fields. Hey, you know what? But none of that matters because even if I was living outside, even if I had walked to church this morning, and even if I was hungry right now, I would know this. This world isn't my home. I know my Savior. The best is yet to come, and I'm confident in Him. Therefore... Therefore, furthermore, I can have joy. My circumstances do not dictate 
my optimism. My optimism is founded on something far more reliable than my human emotions or my temporary circumstances. My joy this morning is rooted in the authority of the creator of the universe. And once I believed, once I exercised that faith, once I settled that relationship and Christ came to live in me, it is unshakable. You say, well, does that mean you never have doubts? Oh, I have doubts. But you know what I do? I align my doubts with my truth. And the truth is this. God is real. His word has explained it to me. I believe it. And in that, I can have not just confidence, but joy in the midst of any circumstances that come my way. Now, here's the reality. Every once in a while, I've got to remind myself of that. Because I'm human and I'm broken. And so when I have flat tires, and when my 403B does decline, or when somebody writes me an ugly note, or whenever I don't get my way about something, or whenever the doctor says, your ticker's bad. Or when I was do I get momentarily discouraged? Oh, yeah, I'm not going to lie to you. <laughs> I'd like for you to think that your pastor never has a bad day, but I'm not going to lie to you. But what happens, here's what happens. The consuming presence of the Holy Spirit in my life does the grinding work of bringing out the truths, the reality, the colors, the victory, the power of the gospel in my life, and I get back to where I need to be. Now, here's the reality. Some of you may be in that situation this morning. Some of you may say, this world is absolutely falling apart. And you may find yourself making, you know, we make these, these remarks, you know, you know these, these, oh, I just can't wait till heaven get here. I'm listening for the trumpet. I'm doing this, you know, and, and it's how we cope. I'm turning off the news. I'm... I'm moving to the mountains, and I'm going to turn off the internet. You know, we have these absurd things. That, you know, we're, we're, but, but the reality is, eventually, eventually, if you know truth, you'll return to truth. Because that's that presence of the Holy Spirit that works in our life. Every once in a while, my wife has to, you know, get me off the edge. <laughs> you know, there are things, that, you know, I'm ranting and raving about something. And so I say, well, honey, and she'll remind me of that. And she's really good at it, but she's not as good as the Holy Spirit is. And if you've got the Holy Spirit living in you, he will call you back to the truth. And where do you find truth? You find it in the Word of God. So let's continue here. So where do I find this joy? Where can I, where can I have this peace regardless of my circumstances? Well, he tells us very, very clearly as he begins in chapter 3. He says, finally, my brother, rejoice in the Lord. Well, what kind of rejoicing are we to have? We're to have the rejoicing that comes with being in the Lord. And when it comes right down to it, that is brass tacks. That is the ultimate foundation. That is the core. Either you are in the Lord or you're not in the Lord. You know, this idea, well, we're all God's children, is not true. The Bible says over and over again, and they were the sons of Satan. So if you're, either, if you're not a son of Satan, you're apparently a son of God. And if you're not a son of God, then who are you? You're a son of Satan. But we, we know that now we're all God's creation. We're all created in the image of God. But we're broken. We're marred. We're disobedient. We're in rebellion. We possess original sin. So we're either a child of God or we're a child of Satan. So if we understand this, where does joy come from? It comes from being the child of the right parent. If I want despair, I know the king of despair. If I want depression, I know he who authored depression. If I want anger, oh, I know somebody who's really angry. If I want all the bad inclinations I have in my life, I know, but he's not my dad. He's not my father. 
And I'm created in the image of the Holy One who gave me life and hope and opportunity and redemption and grace and forgiveness. And in that, when I come under the power of that truth, Paul says, there you go. Got joy in the Lord, don't you? So that's the first one. In the Lord is where we find our joy. But I want you to notice what else he says as he looks in verse 2. He says, look out for the dogs and look out for the evildoers and look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Man, he doesn't waste any time, does he? He's saying, now you can be joyful in the Lord, but if you're going to be joyful in the Lord, you've got to understand, there is going to be a litany of characters around you that are going to try to suck that joy right out of you. And so he says, let me just give you a few right here. He says, watch out for the false teachers. Now, I, I read this and read this and went over and over, and here, here's, here's the best conclusion I can draw from that based on a study of the words and the, and the scholarship around it. But, but there, there's a phrase he uses here that, you know, in our politically correct world, we don't use names, right? But they didn't have those rules in those days. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the dogs. That's a pretty powerful word. I mean, there are worse words, but that's a pretty powerful word, right? Look out for the dogs. Now, when, whenever I was a teenage boy, we used dogs in a very derogatory, you know, if a girl was not pretty, she was doggy, you know? I mean, I'm, I'm sorry, we weren't politically correct. It was the 70s, you know, we believed in freedom of speech and stupidity, and we were good at both. But, but, the, but the reality is, when you, say, when you look and say, man, you're a dog, that's generally not received as complimentary. Am I correct? All right, so who was it that we find that Jesus referred to as dogs most frequently? Stop and think about it. The Pharisees. And the Sadducees, and the, and the religious leadership of the Jewish tradition, and he's saying this. He's, say, he's, he's saying, "Watch out for people who are teaching the false gospel. They're bound and they're conscripted in the law." Now, this is important because in the book, in, in Ephesians, and in Colossians, and and in Galatians, and in 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 Philippians, there's this sub-theme where the Jewish hierarchy, this was their default settings. You remember this? They lived in a culture that said, if you walk too many steps on the Sabbath, you're going to hell. If you cook your dinner on the Sabbath, you're going to hell. If you don't do this, you're, if, you, if you tie your, your, your belt with two hands on the Sabbath, you're going to hell. I mean, they had rules that were just crazy all over the place, and they kept getting worse and worse and more oppressive and more oppressive. And, and, and so that was their default setting. You, some of you folks that grew up Catholic are always talking about your Catholic guilt. That was nothing compared to the Judaistic guilt that was put upon them by their tradition. And Jesus referred to these people as dogs. They're false teachers. Dismiss it. But then he goes to the second thing. Be aware of evildoers or look out for evildoers. So, well, aren't false teachers evildoers? Well, yes, but this is a different category. And these are people that are adding. This is, this is a step in. This is the people who are adding to the gospel. And he's having to address them over and over. They were sometimes referred to as Judaizers in the book of Galatians. But these were the people that were trying to merge, trying to meld, trying to create a syncretic faith between Judaism and Christianity where you had to obey the law and you had to obey and, and, and you enjoyed who Christ was as a great teacher and maybe even a Messiah, but maybe not the Messiah, the real Messiah. And, and they kept mixing it up. And there's all different uh, gradations of it. By the way, that's still, that's still true today. There's a thing called the, the Jewish Roots Movement that I've, I've watched evangelicals get into and completely abandon their faith. There today are people who still want to add works to salvation. And these folks are evildoers because they're teaching a phony faith. They're undercutting the power of the gospel. And if you add works to God's grace, you corrupt it. 
It is not by works, but by grace through faith. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. Again, Paul addressing the church at Ephesus. Why? Because they were having people come back in with this phony faith that said, yeah, God will do what God can do, and you do what you're supposed to do, and together syncretically, you'll get to heaven. And that's a lie. God has done everything that needed to be done when he sent his son to die on the cross. And there is not one thing that you do short of believing Short of a believing that's so powerful, you repent of your ability to save yourself, repent of your sins, and you say, I believe. Short of that, there is nothing that you can humanly do to gain eternal life. Because the law showed us that none of us are righteous. No, not wrong. No, not one. Romans 10. So when you see that, you understand. But here's this other thing. That he says, so watch out for that. But look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now, the mutilation of the flesh here, what he's talking about is circumcision. This was big in Jewish culture and custom. On the eighth day, every male child was circumcised. And, you know, that's not a super comfortable conversation that you have in church, right? I understand that. But you understand that was a part of their identity in faith and as a nation. If you were a Jew, you got circumcised on the eighth day. And it showed the patriarchal nature of the customs and culture of that day. Obviously, this only applies to men. But the bottom line is this. You weren't devout. You weren't godly. You had no right to joy if you hadn't been circumcised in this system. And so there was this constant pressure to go back to the old system, beginning with circumcision. But once you got, once that became an issue, then all the other laws had to fall into place as well. Observing the Sabbath and and the feasts and all the different things. And Paul was saying, you've been freed from this. Don't get depressed. Don't get discouraged. And don't go back to the way you were. You were without hope then. He said, you have joy in Christ because you've seen truth. And in truth, you can look at the dogs and the false teachers and the empty rituals, and all those other things, and see that they fell short of what was needed to have salvation. And if you've got salvation, you've got reason to be joy-filled this morning. Be consumed by that truth, that truth. In other words, have discernment. And folks, this is so important, and I cannot overemphasize this this morning. You've got to know your Bible in this day and age. You've got to know the Word of God. Why? Because there are dogs, and there are false teachers who are trying to add to the gospel or take you back to bondage. And they pollute the gospel. Last night, and boy, I love Rebecca Peters. She's, she's, she's amazing. And you want to know why she's amazing? She's amazing because she's constantly, exam- like, you remember what I said last week with Jason Heiss looking at the words of the song, making sure they meet doctrinal muster? She does that with curriculum. She always is going to the curriculum, making sure that it lines up. And there are times when she'll come in and she'll say to, to Ben and I, she'll go, let's look at this. And is, is this going to line up? How do we want to teach this to make sure that they're not confused on this? But there's a trend going on right now, and it was happening last month, where there are evangelical people who are saying, don't teach your kids that Jesus died for their sins, because that makes kids uncomfortable. Literally, I saw the posts. I saw the, li- the line. And there were... There, there were five things that you shouldn't emphasize during teaching your kids about the resurrection. And all five of them were fundamental, biblical, absolutely dynamic and important truths. But we don't want our kids to feel uncomfortable. So we want our kids to go to hell because if you do not believe that Christ died for the sins of the earth, that's exactly where you go. 
You say, well, that's very hard line. That's very militant. Yeah, that's the thing about truth. That ultimately, not everything is true. Only what is true is true. And whether that makes you feel good or not, whether you like that or not, whether you would do it the same way or not, does not in any way impact the objective reality of truths that cannot be challenged by mere mortal men. So in their effort to make sure that everybody feels good and feels happy and feels included, they have damned those who would believe the lies of a deluded truth. And I will say this to you, in Lifeway Christian, well, they don't have Lifeway Christian bookstores anymore, but if you go to the Lifeway Christian website and order some of the books there, you will get a good dose of doggish material if you don't know the Word of God. If you turn on TBN, if you look at certain YouTube channels, there are things going on and people who would say, well, I'm a Christian, but they did this in Galatia. Yeah, but I'm a Christ follower. Yeah, they did this in Ephesus. And Paul's saying this, watch out, because when you start putting works back into and performance back into and anything in addition to God's grace, when you put those things into the plan of salvation, you pollute it and you're in danger and you should not be joy-filled. And he's saying, call it out. And folks, it's time that we stood up for truth. And I don't care how many people attend your church on a Sunday. I don't care how many books you've written. I don't care how many planes you own. I don't care how many houses you have around the world. If you're preaching a prosperity gospel, you're a dog. I don't care if you I don't care if you've got thousands of years of tradition behind you. I don't care if you've got a bunch of degrees behind your name. I don't care if anything, if you're saying that you've got to be baptized and confirmed and this and that and this ritual and that ritual and you got to give 10% all these things in order to be a Christian in order to be saved and on your way. You're a dog. And Paul was saying this, these things will rob you of the joy that only Christ can give. Pay attention. I'd like to park there for longer, but we've still got another nine verses, so here we go. Look if you in verse 3b, the second part, all right? It says this, For we are the circumcision who worshipped by the Spirit of God. Now, by the way, the circumcision here means this. Our hearts have been circumcised. Why? Because we've given him first place. Okay, the foreskin, all right? That is That was the picture of the circumcision of the heart, where we give him first place of our will, our intellect, our emotion, our knowledge. So that's the, that's the biblical picture between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And we are of the circumcision, not in the physical sense, but in the spiritual sense. I'd love to go through the word study and show you all those, but you can, you, you know, you're smart and you got Google. You can do that, all right? Buy Logos and you can, you can, you can find it yourself. Study it some more. But, but here's the reality. He says, who, if you're of the circumcision, what's unique about you? You worship by the Spirit, capital S, of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So there's, there's several things here. The first thing is this. You're going to have Spirit-filled worship. Notice I didn't say this. You're going to have energized worship. I didn't say you're going to have eloquent worship. I didn't say you're going to have professional worship. You're going to have Spirit-filled worship. That word worship here is, is a Greek term which is best translated to render respectful spiritual service. Here's the kicker. Here's the kicker. We have worship services, but that's only a fraction of biblical Spirit-filled worship. Spirit-filled worship is 24-7. Spirit-filled worship is not just what we say or sing, but also what we do and practice. Every time you share the gospel, you're worshiping. Every time you choose right over wrong, you're worshiping. Every time you do an adjustment toward truth, you're worshiping. 
Every time you reprioritize your life to put him first, you're worshiping. Spirit-filled worship is about transformation of our entire life. It's about living one's life in faithful obedience and service to God as a matter of lifestyle, not merely occasion. Worship is supernatural at its core because it is the Spirit, again, capital S, Spirit of God, that generates it. You remember what Jesus said to the woman at the well in Samaria? He said, there's coming a day when you worship me in Spirit, capital S, and truth. With our hearts and with our heads, you will worship. I'm sorry, it's not a capital S there. It's a small letter. With our hearts and with our heads. How can we know with our, with, with our hearts that we're right? Because with our heads, we have truth. You see, you always align your heart to truth. Because i got to tell you, my heart is desperately wicked, deceitful above all things. It's a mess. There are some days that I have good attitudes and some days I have bad attitudes. How do I put it into alignment? I know what truth is. That's why we got to study the Word of God. The Word of God causes our hearts to come into alignment with truth. And this is what Spirit-filled worship is about because it is a Spirit that lives within us. That's why the Bible says walk circumspectly. Paul said that over and over again. He says always be aware of where you're going. Always be aware of the decisions you're making. Always be aware of the temptation that's around you. Always be aware of the priorities that you're going to need to decide today. In other words, we ought to be walking constantly. Why? Well, number one is because our adversary, the devil, walks about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. You know, it's funny. I was in Africa a few weeks ago. We took a, a drive through a game park, and we were looking for lions. And you know how we look for lions? Like this. <laughs> you know, you don't want a lion to sneak up on you. Now, we finally found a lion. He wasn't looking for us at that moment. But I do know this. When a lion comes after you, he doesn't march up to you. He stalks you. And you better be paying attention or you're going to be lunch. And you understand this devil, the devil has a plan, a strategy for your defeat. He's looking for a way to eat you. So what you should do, walk circumspectly. But also in this, we have decisions every day that we have to make about what is good and what is better and what is best. How we spend our money, how we spend our time, how we respond under stress. Oh, there's a thousand different ways in which we have to. And every time we choose truth, truth, we worship. You know why? Because if you leave me up to my own devices, I will choose wrong every time. I will choose to do something that makes me feel good. I will choose something that advances me. I will choose something that gives, pumps my pride button. I will choose something that gives me an ego boost or, or an endorphin rush or a dopamine hit. I'll choose all those things all every single time. But what is it that changes me where I seek truth? Well, the Bible says it's the love of Christ. What does the Bible say? The love of Christ constrains me or controls me, depending on what version you're using. So in other words, if you love Christ, it changes how you make decisions, how you prioritize things. And in that we find joy because that is spirit-filled worship. Got to keep going. Then if you look on in, in the next part, in the glory of Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. What should we be doing? Glorifying Christ. The word here, glory, literally means boasting with exultant joy about the thing someone is most proud of. Boasting in exultant joy about the thing someone is most proud of. Now, I'm a grandparent. Not going to lie to you. You sit with me very long, you're going to see pictures. All right? It's what I do. It's what grandpas do, right? And, And if you don't believe that, then you're not a grandpa. Because if you're a grandpa, you're going to do that. That's what we do. I love my grandkids. They're the best grandkids that ever existed, just like yours are the best kids that ever existed. I boast in them. I, I, they, they make me smile. On my echo at home, 
you know, their pictures flash all the time. I eat my banana with peanut butter on it every morning, and I look at the pictures of the grandkids, and I pray for them. Why? Because they give me that joy, and I boast in them. How much more should we boast in Christ? If he is the ultimate, if he, I get to enjoy my grandkids because of Christ. I get to enjoy my banana with peanut butter on because of Christ. I got to get out of bed this morning because of Christ. In other words, when we don't glorify Christ, we're missing that opportunity to live in joy. When somebody walks up to me and says, man, that was a great, great, great sermon this morning. I try intentionally, and if I don't call me on it, I try to say, praise the Lord. You know why? Because I'm not an order and because I'm not smart. And I'm not anything. If for some reason something that falls out of my face hits you in a place that God uses, it's because the Lord did it, not because Dan did it. It's because the Holy Spirit applied it to you, not because I'm eloquent, because you could do a better job of this than I. I'm confident, except, except for the power of the Holy Spirit. Which also means this. Your words fitly spoken to people who need to hear truth are going to be empowered to the same way mine are or any other pastor you've ever heard because it glorifies Christ and it is Christ who lives in us, who gives us this ability. So we ought to glorify Christ. Did you get a raise? Praise the Lord. Kids turned out right? Praise the Lord. Get a good report from the doctor? Praise the Lord. You say, well, what happens when things go bad? You still praise the Lord. Why? Because he's Lord. Because he's Lord. Remember what Job said? Lord gives, Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He had it right. And by the way, that was a statement of worship that reflected how he lived his life. And we need to ask ourselves sometime, is the worship I give here on Sunday morning or the worship I claim to use, is that honest worship? Does it really reflect what's going on in my heart? Got to continue. Look in verse 5. Or I'm sorry, verse, verse 3 again. Where am I at? Here we go. And put no confidence in the flesh. And here's, here's a, apart from any confidence in our humanity or our flesh, we find our joy. If you're finding joy in your health, in your wealth, in your education, in your background, in your national identity, in your power, authority, position, you name it. If you're finding any confidence in that, remember this. Remember this, when you die, no one's going to care. They're not going to be impressed with how much money you have, not how, how big your office was, or how many bedrooms were in your bedroom or in, in your house. Not going to care how many boats you'd ever owned or what kind of car you drove. You know why? Because you're dead, right? <laughs> That's the flesh. Went to Mount Vernon last fall. You know who I saw? Didn't see George Washington. I saw his tomb. You know why? He's dead. He didn't have any authority over me anymore. Oh, yeah, I see his picture on my dollars and on my quarters. But other than that, he's dead. (laughs) But there's something more important. And that is we live eternally. And the only things that are really going to matter in the end are those things, those spiritual things. Now, i got to hurry. Verse 4 is a dividing line. 
Okay, there's two transitional verses here, verse 4 and verse 7. Verse 4, dividing line says, Therefore I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, and anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I've got more. So this is kind of, he's kind of putting a pause here. And he's basically dismantling, once again, the prevailing false belief of that culture and system that says, you think, you, you, you think you're pious, you think you're educated, you think you got it going on, i got to tell you, man, if that was the measuring vice, I'm a Sadducee, I'm a fair, I, I, I got an education, I, you know, I've stood before emperors and princes and kings, and I've done this, I've done that. He said, if you want to talk, if you want to compare resumes, Let's go. Let's go. He said, but that's not what gives me confidence. And so very quickly, he's going, this is what salvation is not. And we're going to have to blitz through this. So bear with me, okay? But look in verse, there's, there's three verses, four, five, and six that he gives his list. Here you go. Verse four, he says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. Also, if anyone thinks he has confidence in the flesh, I have more. In other words, you think self-confidence is about it? Because don't, don't love, aren't you supposed to look in the mirror every morning and say, I'm, 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 I can do this. I'm powerful. I'm smart. I'm beautiful. I'm a good person. No, 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 no. If you accomplish anything today, it's not because of what you see in the mirror. It's because of what you don't see in the mirror. And that's the Christ that lives within you. So he says, don't talk to me about confidence because confidence doesn't matter. Now look in verse 5. Circumcised on the eighth day. It's not about traditions. Paul was circumcised. He was a good Jew boy. He did all the things. He went to Jewish school. He went to, he, went to, he went to Jewish training. He was a rabbi. He was smart. He was educated. He'd even been elected to be on the Sanhedrin. He was, he was the Jew of all Jews. And he said, ah, not about that. So circumcision, traditions. So you say, you say, well, I grew up in the church. I went to a Christian school. I was catechized. I was, I was, I was uh, um, uh, confirmed. I was, I was baptized. I joined the church. I preached when I was 12. I did all these different things. All those are, you know, you know of differing value and, and so forth, and they may have been part of your progression. But the bottom line is this. Your heritage does not give you, or, or your uh, traditions do not give you eternal life. All right? So look in verse 5 again. Of the people of Israel. Oh, oh. Here we go. I'm, I'm a Jew. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I even know what tribe I'm from. I've got a good pedigree. Well, it doesn't matter, he said, because that, that's not what gives me joy and confidence in Christ. Well, we said, I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He said, not only am I a Jew, I'm a Hebrew. I'm a religious. I'm practicing. I'm not just a cultural Jew. I'm a practicing, dedicated. Uh, well, you know, it's not about religion because Baptists and Episcopalians and Catholics and Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses and Seventh-day Adventists and, and Muslims and Hindus and, and Buddhists and you, you plug whatever the thousands of different religions out there, some of those are all going to go to hell. They're going to go to hell. They're not going to do it. The Bible says, many will say, Lord, Lord, but I did this in your name. And they're going to say, depart from me. I didn't know you. So it's not about religion, religious affiliation. He was Hebrew of the Hebrews. Didn't get more devout than he was. Well, look if you wouldn't, again in verse 5. As to the law, a Pharisee. He said, i, I got to tell you this. I knew the law. I'd been educated in the best schools there were. I had the degrees. I have the credentials. And it meant nothing. Nothing. All right? Look in verse 6. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. He said, I was so earnest in what I did that I gave my life to it. I dedicated my life, my life to it. But he was dedicated to the wrong thing. He said, oh, well, well, what about this? As to righteousness under the law, blameless. He said, I was a good dude. <laughs> oh, I did not walk too many steps on the Sabbath. I did not eat bacon. 
I did not tie my belt on Sundays or Monday or Saturdays with both hands. No, sir, I did not do it. I was blameless. It's not why he could have joy in the Lord. It's not about performed righteousness. And folks, whatever it is that may be in your life that makes you think that you're a good Christian or a Christian at all, before God is as filthy rags. (laughs) Now look at verse 7 because we have this other transition verse. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. So here's the transition. He says, all my false positives got canceled out when I met Jesus. You know my self-confidence, my traditions, you know my heritage, my religion, my knowledge, my earnestness, my performed righteousness, all those things, nothing. Before Christ, you put that light on it, and it melted away because of who Jesus is. So, if that is the case, well, what is salvation? What is salvation? We'll look in verse 8. I know we're going quickly, but you can just follow it right down here. Indeed, I count everything as loss. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all those things I thought were important. All my good works, all my education, all my status, all my Hebrewishness, all gone. And here, I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. So here's the first one. It's just simply knowing Jesus. Real salvation begins with believing he is who he said he was. And he said, you, and this is really graphic, okay? Can you bear with me? You teenagers are going to love this, all right? But this is so graphic what he's, he's saying here. And, and we've kind of cleaned it up a little bit. But he's saying, all those things, that big list I just gave you, he said, I view them as, the phrase here, the, the, the word here in the Hebrew is the strongest scatological term available for excrement, all right? You can fill in the blank in your own head, and I'm a little ashamed of you for knowing that word, but this is what he's saying. He's saying, all those good works was nothing but a big pile of steaming. Not good stuff. That's how strong this phrase is. It is not a passive word. And when you study this word in Greek literature, it's a word that your mama would have washed your mouth out with soap for. And this was the emphasis that Paul was putting on our works. You may think you bring something to the cross. You may think you bring something to your relationship with Christ. You may think you're all that. And I'm here to tell you all that good stuff that you are banking on, giving you credits in heaven, are like dung. Are like filth are like the stuff you scrape off the bottom of your shoes. That's pretty important. Knowing Jesus, everything else compared to knowing Jesus, is rubbish and manure. When we come under the power of that reality in that graphic level, in that intense imagery, we're just beginning to know who Jesus is. Just beginning to know the power of the gospel. Second thing, if you would in in, in verse 9. Right? And be found in him, not having righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. We get imputed righteousness. And I want you to understand this. Look at what he says. Man, I wish I had time to just open this up. The righteousness from God that depends on works. 
Did I read that correctly? No. The righteousness of man that depends on faith. Did I get that right? No. It is the righteousness of God that depends on faith. When we get righteousness, we get it directly from God, not because of what we do, but because of what he has done. It is that faith in the power of the cross that gives us imputed righteousness. And imputed means he assigns to us his righteousness and all that it entails. Unpack that if you can at home. (laughs) This idea of being in him is such an important theme to Paul. 75 times in his letters, he talks about being in Christ, in God, in him. And we are to have his nature, his righteousness, his presence, his love, his life. All of this is imputed into us at salvation because the Holy Spirit lives within us. Number three, there's supernatural power. Look, if you would, in verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. The resurrection was a supernatural event. It cannot be explained by science, and it is ludicrous to try to come up with some kind of theory whereupon that happened naturally. It didn't happen naturally. It happened supernaturally. And if you don't believe in the supernatural work of God, then you do not believe in a supernatural God, and then you don't believe in God at all. You believe in nature. You believe in coincidence. You believe in circumstances, but you don't believe in God. He is beyond nature. He is supernatural. Again, I'd like to unpack that for a long time, but look if you would in verse 10. Thereby we share his, the power of his resurrection may share his sufferings because like him in his death, we share in his, there's a communion. We share with Christ. This fellowship, this communion is made possible through suffering. Now here, and again, there's a whole sermon right here, but just bear with me. And if you'd study it on your own, you'll get some comfort on this. Do you know that on your worst day, on your worst day, you can learn from Christ. When your suffering is the deepest, you can learn from Christ. When the pain is the greatest, you can learn from Christ. When your mom dies unexpectedly, when the doctor says you've got cancer, get your affairs in order. When the boss says, here's a box, put everything on your desk in it. Whenever someone rejects you and says, get out of my life, I don't want to be part of you. When the worst things that can happen in life happen to you, at that moment, you are closer to Christ than you may have ever been before. Why? Because as you suffered, remember, he suffered and even more so. There is nothing that you are going through that Christ has not in some way, some level, experienced himself. And the knowledge of that will help you because none of us like to go through hard times alone. None of us like to take those journeys by ourselves. That's why when somebody's hurting that you've had an experience, you walk up to them and say, and sometimes it's not good to say this, but you say, I know how you feel. Why? Because we know there's a fellowship with suffering. If you've lost a baby, I know some of what you feel. We've experienced it. If you've lost a parent, I know some of what you feel. We've experienced it. Ever been fired? I know some of what you feel because I've experienced it. You've got your list. I've had my list, okay? But here's, here's the deal. No matter what you've gone through, Christ has suffered, and he suffered more, and he suffered unjustly. So in that, 
we have a communion with him unlike any other relationship in heaven or in earth. And then finally, look, look in verse 11, that by any means I may attain the resurrection from the dead. That is eternal life right there. And folks, that is what salvation is. It's a deliverance from death to life. Not just life, abundant life. Joy-filled life. The resurrection of the dead, that term there, literally means out from among the corpses. Out from among the corpses. Remember when the Bible says, and the dead of Christ shall rise first, and boom, they come out from among the corpses. That's the resurrection. And you and I have come out from among those who are dead in their sins and trespasses to have life everlasting. We're out from among the corpses. I close with this. When we're consumed by the Lord, there ought to be some things that are obvious in our life. Number one, we walk in enthused discernment. You ought to have an enthused, and by the way, the word enthused means in theos, in theos, theo, theology, God. When you are walking in truth and you know God, there ought to be an enthusiasm that allows you to see reality. To see discouragement as temporary and joy as eternal. To see death as a sting, but eternal life is the victory. It allows you to see the realities around us supernaturally, not simply naturally. Number two, we break free from our, fat, our past, both its lows and its highs. Both its lows and its highs. Now, Paul was a unique critter. He said, look, I'm righteous. Look, I'm a Hebrew. Look, I'm circumcised. Look, I'm... Man, he did it all, right? The other side of that is, I murdered somebody. I grew up poor. I can't read. I'm an addict. I've been divorced three times. I've spent time in prison. See, those are the lows. Paul was talking about the highs, but whether you're talking about highs or lows, you understand this, it's all under the blood of Christ. And he's not impressed by our highs, nor is he intimidated by our lows. He loves us where we are, and he loves us to where we need to be. That's salvation. And that's the truth that you and I ought to be walking in. Number three, we reevaluate our priorities. We reevaluate our priorities. And your priorities are not found on a bank statement. Your priorities ought not be found in an address or in a number of degrees or how many children you have or how many square feet are in your house. But your priorities ought to reflect the priorities of God. And how do you find those out? You study his word. The last thing is this. We long for and strive for things of eternal value. We long for and strive for things of eternal value. What makes the angels in heaven rejoice? Is it when you get the promotion? Is it when you get married? Is it when you have your first kid? Is it when you buy your first house? No, you know when the angels in heaven rejoice? When those who are lost are found. Why? Because that has eternal value. Your soul is important to God. It has eternal value. And we can rejoice in that today. All right, there you go. Filled your head up. Now what are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with it? Is it going to change the way you live? I'd like to take the next 15 minutes, 20 minutes, and wind your stems. I'd like to get you all inspired. I want you to go out there and charge hell with a wet handkerchief. I want all those things for you. But the Holy Spirit will do it better than I will if you'll take this truth and bury it deep in your heart and say, God, what did you need me to hear this morning? You'll change your life.